0: Available in more homes than the Pac-12 Network. We are the podcast of champions.
1: I back
2: the are down to the 20. All the
1: out on the field.
0: I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online.
3: And here he goes, Miles Jack. And I'm Ryan Abraham from USCFootball.com. Liner
2: gonna try to sneak it ahead. Touchdown SC.
0: We are the podcast of champions. Everybody back to the podcast of champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24 7 Sports Network.
3: And I'm Ryan Abraham from USCFootball.com, the USC site on the 24 7 Sports Network. And together we are the podcast of champions talking Pac 12 football year round, David. We're, we're doing a pretty good job this offseason.
0: I know. We are already. What month is it? What month is it? March? Uh, we're already in March, <laughs> Ryan. We're already in March. March Madness, but we're still not going to talk much basketball. We're only going to talk football um, because there's really not much basketball to talk in the Pac-12. But yeah, we've been doing a great job. Weekly shows and uh, who knows, maybe we'll even keep it up for the next four months.
3: We're going to keep trying. And this is our our sixth installment of our in-depth series on all of the Pac-12 schools. So we only have Washington and Washington State left. So we're going to talk to Chris Fetters and Barry Bolton today. They cover Washington and Washington State respectively. If you have any questions for us, I think we got some tweets and some emails. You can send them to Pac12Podcast at gmail.com for email and tweet us at Pac12Podcast. All of our old episodes are on, on the web, pack 12 podcastcom And if you want to call and leave a voicemail, you can do that too. Call 641-715-3900, extension 734 734- nine seven two please subscribe on itunes leave us some positive feedback i don't. i think we requested it last week dave i don't know if anyone left us any feedback
0: i don't think so dang i don't think
3: so. come on get on there get on the itunes and uh leave. Well, actually
0: I, I i may have spoken too soon i think we are up back up to a five-star rating back oh. up to a perfect five-star rating but when i last checked the reviews we hadn't yet gotten any and uh well we might have gotten one Damn. hold on you just sit tight. I hey, will. sit tight, everyone. This is great radio. I think you all are enjoying it.
3: <laughs> but like I said, this is before Dave uh, reads that. This is our sixth and final edition of our buddy Hit the Day. Alman's request that we go in depth about the infrastructure of all of the Pac twelve schools. We did all the Pac twelve uh, Southern schools first, starting with USC and UCLA, and then we've finishing up, like I said, with Washington and Washington State. So you can go back to our website, Pac12Podcast.com, if you want to read or listen to some of the older episodes. I think we broke it up with one recruiting one post-signing day. Then going forward, I think we're going to focus more on spring football, and we'll get some updates from all the schools.
0: We do have a couple of new reviews. Oh, so it works. Should I I read them? Yeah, that'd be great. All right. This is from Jeremy Ratt. Always a great listen. For a Pac-12 honk living outside of the conference's footprint, the POC is a lifesaver. Ryan and Dave are able to step outside of the L.A. bubble to provide a unique and broad perspective on Pac-12 football. Ryan and Dave have great chemistry and play their roles, straight man and comic relief, quite well. Their current project where they take a deep dive on each school by talking to the 247 publisher for the different fan sites is fascinating. And even I, as an unabashed University of Washington fan, find the constant Jake Browning ribbing quite funny. (laughs) If you have any interest in the Pac-12, you will love this podcast. That's what we're talking about. That's the kind of review... We need more of. Yay. Great stuff, Jeremy Ratt.
3: Awesome. Um, Who's the comic relief and who's the straight guy? I don't know. I I don't know. I'm probably the straight guy, right?
0: You're probably the straight guy. I don't, I mean, I guess I'm comic relief.
3: I don't know. I don't know if that's good or bad.
0: I don't, I I don't think it speaks well of either of us, to be (laughs) honest, which is just how we want every review to be.
3: (laughs) Perfect. Um, Well, hey, Dave, I don't know. Did you know this? 66% 66% of men start losing their hair by the time they turn 35. How old are you?
0: I'm, I'm 32, and I'm, I'm definitely among the 66% of men who start losing their hair by the age of 35.
3: I'm 47. I'm pretty lucky, Got but still I can see my forehead getting a little bigger. But when you start to notice hair loss, it's too late. 4 is a one-stop shop for hair loss. You get medical-grade solutions. Real doctors offering well known generic equivalents to name brand subscrip- prescriptions to help you keep your hair. These are not herbal supplements, they're prescription solutions backed by science and they're shipped directly to your door.
0: So, order now. Our listeners get a trial month of everything you need to keep your hair for just $5 today, right now, while supplies last. See the website for full details. This would cost hundreds if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy. So go to forhims dot slash champs. That's f o r h i m s dot com slash champs. For him, forhims slash champs.
3: Yeah, check it out. So we, I guess, it, hopefully it's not too late for us, Dave. Uh, we're both pretty lucky. We both got a lot of hair, but you know.
0: I, I think most of mine is just kind of translating to my face <laughs> you, over time.
3: You do which have a lot isn't, of,
0: <laughs> not the worst thing in the world, but yeah, you know, maybe I'll look into four hymns and see if uh, see if I can get the top taken care of.
3: Cool. Um, okay, did, did we have another review? Because well, first of all, that review was a. It was great. It
0: was a, it was we, a we... rave. Uh, we do have one other one. This is a little shorter, little little sweeter. Uh, you guys are awesome. This is from DBG. Five three five two. You guys are awesome. Love the info on the entire league. You guys really capture the vibe of the pack. Great job. Love huh. that too. You yeah. know what? That's a great review as well. We rate that review five stars.
3: Yeah, I gave it a little uh, applause there at the end. Um, we do love that. Thank thank you so much for the reviews. Uh, we do appreciate you spending some time, and it helps you know helps other people realize the show is here you let them know about it tell your friends and uh, it's pretty amazing like the the tweets and stuff we've been getting we get a lot of positive comments about how we work together and all that kind of stuff so it's it's pretty cool
0: yeah i love it i love it um it's always good to get good feedback on your work and it's even i i mean me me being kind of a just a pugnacious fellow i like the (laughs) negative feedback too it (laughs) allows me to engage with my trolls on twitter which is really uh my calling in life
3: the, uh, so speaking of the trolls on Twitter, um, the uh, it's March Madness, Dave, and uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if you mm-hmm. followed, but th- there's already been you know the the first four games. There's already been a couple of those, and there's going to be a couple more today. Today's Wednesday, the day we're taping this. Uh, but the Pac-12 did not do so well, even though I think Bill Walton thought that eight or nine <laughs> teams would make the the, the tournament. Uh, we had the the one. You know, uh, automatic bid because Arizona won the Pac-12. Uh, right. You know, that's the tournament they do. Yeah. No, you get a bid we're for we're that.
0: We're basically like a Horizon League this year. We get the automatic <laughs> bid and then kind of dicey after that.
3: To uh, um, play in games, which they don't like to call. Um, you're the basketball expert, man. Is this, was this expected? Was this normal? USC didn't get in. There's all kinds of weird stuff.
0: First of all, never in life call me the basketball expert. <laughs> all right? I take insults really personally. <laughs> Second... Um. yeah I mean it was expected I, mean, I expected it because I knew kind of looking all along that the Pac-12 was rated really really poorly relative to the other conferences and when the Pac-12 in the past has been rated poorly I mean they've ended up with like two seeds they've ended up with two teams in the tournament uh, as recently as like, 2012 um, so getting three in even if two of them were not really in um, they're in that weird play in category which I don't think qualifies but um, somewhat expected, um, I think USC probably had a claim to get in, I would say probably over Arizona state, which really tanked towards the end of the year. But frankly, I mean, any PAC 12 team was going to be a double digit seed this year. Uh, besides Arizona, um, everyone else was just too, it was just this like mediocre, massive teams in the middle. Um, and none of them very good. And UCLA already lost to St. Bonaventure, um, which is also a high school. <laughs> um, inventor. So, whenever you're losing to a to a to a, a college that's the name of a local LA area high school, I just start rethinking some things. All right? Like I guess Notre Dame, Sherman Oaks Notre Dame sort of, but they've got the Sherman Oaks in there too. I mean, yeah. I'm not calling it Notre Dame. So, I St. Bonaventure though, you know, that's where Ricky Town went. So if it's where Ricky Town went, <laughs> don't lose to them in basketball.
3: Um, so one thing you guys should be doing, if you don't, you should follow David Woods on Twitter. David, at David David Woods, um, goes on, likes to go on rants. And, you know, sometimes it's like the whole beat the dead horse thing, but he keeps going and going. And it's 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 really fun to watch and to read. And I don't always follow exactly some of the subtleties of, of what you're saying. But my take from the last couple of days have been, People are too hard on Steve Alford and you have to give him more time to to get this right. So is yeah, that exactly. is that is that right what you're saying or
0: Exactly, 100%. Um <laughs> he's just been an embattled coach for so long. No, I mean obviously he's 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 garbage and I've been <laughs> I've been sharing stats for that effect for most of the last like 4 weeks. Like I just kind of Wake up in the morning, dig up some stuff, post it on Twitter. I've been scheduling some of these tweets <laughs> just like in advance because I'm like, oh, I look something up, but it's like, oh, it's 4 a.m. Pacific time, so maybe I should, uh, maybe I should just schedule this and not actually post it right now. Um, so if you see like a massive tweets from me from like 10 to 10:07, all of them scheduled one minute apart. <laughs> yeah, that's what that that's what that was. Um, but yeah, um, I. Uh, I was compelled to do this, and I'll, I'll get on my soapbox for just a second. Yeah, yeah. Um, whenever uh, UCLA is getting towards the end with a particular coach in basketball, this isn't a football thing, but in basketball, suddenly the national media voices start talking about the expectations, these wild, outsized expectations of UCLA fans, and it rarely, if ever, has anything to do with that. Um, in the 1980s, maybe, when they were firing you know, coaches and guys who went, you know, 29 and two were, you know, getting the cold shoulder from fans. But UCLA fans don't have any higher or lower expectations than like, I don't know, any 30 other programs. What happens is UCLA's hired, you know, as they did in football for a very long time. They've just hired a lot of mediocre coaches, Ben Halland being maybe the one exception. Um, so I wanted to get out in front of that with some actual stats work, like not anything that I, I've tried to be overly fair with like what I'm posting just cause I, I don't make it about expectations. It's, you know, objectively against, you know, the 10 other coaches since 1948, he's been worse than all of them. So that's, that's my take on, uh, on, on Steve Alford. He's just been basically the worst UCLA coach since 1948 besides like
3: Walt Hazard. And what is the, is it realistic that UCLA would get rid of him, or is that not going to happen?
0: I don't think it happens this year. No. Um, I think, uh, I don't think there's enough administration, administrative motivation to do it. Um I think if fans get incensed enough and if they make enough noise and boosters get on board with that, maybe that could, you know, have some positive results for, you know, people who want him fired, but um I don't think the administration at this moment is motivated to do it.
3: Hmm. Okay. Well well. Well, check it out. That's probably more basketball than we should ever talk, right?
0: No, so, God. And I, I had to get like semi-serious because I was explaining my tweets for a second. And uh, let's let's <laughs> move on. Let's move on.
3: <laughs> All right, Dave. Well, we got to jump into our deep dive series. Uh, we're going to talk in this ne- next segment about
1: Washington Huskies.
3: <laughs> and we have Chris Fetters. Uh, follow him on Twitter at Chris He's the editor of of dogman.com chris thanks for joining us man how you doing i'm doing
2: great guys how are you doing
0: can't complain can't complain we're uh it's march madness coming up this weekend and while it doesn't matter for pac-12 schools basically <laughs> uh it's still be kind of fun uh
2: but we That's want to touch it action coming up here tonight uh, <laughs> or, or wednesday or whenever whenever this thing is happening so yeah the, the the washington huskies versus the i don't know the broncos of boise state i mean how can you not get oh. fired up for that
0: be a fun it would be a fun uh college football matchup and that's that's how you got to think about it all you know usc played unc Asheville last night and all right so it was basketball it's not so much fun but if you think about it for football it's also still not much fun but (laughs) but, um it's you got to get your jolly somehow all right well we wanted to talk washington football today um and we sent you some questions just to give everyone uh the backstory again this is our final installment of the deep dive series that came from our listener hithlid a almond this is kind of a dive into the infrastructure the baseline strengths and weaknesses of different programs um not necessarily what's going on in the current status but you know kind of what's the the underpinnings of the program so uh we wanted to dive right in with the first section uh this one covers resources um so i'll ask these questions uh Chris, does Washington have the money to meet its program goals? Are its facilities adequate and modern? And does it have the financial ability to make a sudden high quality coaching change if it wants?
2: Well, I, I think I can attack that last one pretty quickly, only in the sense that they they made their sudden high quality coaching change when Steve Sarkeesian left uh, at the end of the 2013 season. So, um, you know, right now with Chris Peterson, he certainly doesn't look like he wants to go anywhere. Um, Washington is it did a nice job of retaining him, and and he's wanted to make sure that his assistants are compensated appropriately. And so that's happened, and they had to get a little creative this last season. Uh, after the season, when Jimmy Lake became the defensive coordinator and Pete Kwiatkowski, they kind of switched roles, so he'll become kind of the co uh, D.C. And so they had to get a little creative in the accounting there to make sure everything uh, got settled the way it needed to. But, you know, bottom line is the last year and a half or so, we talked to Jen Cohen, the, the athletic director at Washington. And, um, you know, the, the last couple seasons of Washington football, when you win 22 games and and you have the kind of success going to a Fiesta Bowl, going to a uh, the Peach Bowl, which was the, the national semifinal game against number one, Alabama, you know that's going to attract some some interest from boosters and, and continued financial interest, and so uh, their ability to step up and kind of supplement what Washington was already getting through their gate receipts and and through the TV contract and everything else has put Washington in a fairly healthy position financially. So um, they can they could make a sudden high quality coaching change if they needed to. They did it in basketball, uh, getting Mike Hopkins this last season, when, and and when they let Lorenzo Romar go. So they have done that in terms of basketball. Now football, you know, obviously there's a lot more money involved. I mean, I mean, I think what was it just in the last month or two? The one of the LSU assistants now has like a ten-year guaranteed deal yeah. or ten million-dollar guaranteed deal. I mean, that that kind of stuff is just absurd. I mean, it's just unheard of. So um, I have no idea if it's going to be a situation where um, you know the the escalating prices for for assistance gets to the point where. It hits a bubble and it, ha- it has to pop, or or what? But uh, you know, the, the Pac-12 is just not going to see a ton more money through this existing TV contract, and we know that, that there's going to be years until that thing uh, gets renegot, starting to get renegotiated. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think Washington might be one of the few programs uh, in the Pac-12 right now that that might be able to say it's financially secure enough that it could probably make a, a sudden high quality coaching change if it needed to without absolutely, you know, bankrupting them at this point. Um, in terms of, do they have the money to meet their program goals and, 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 and have all the facilities and everything else that they need? I think, I think that I just kind of answered the general question, I guess, but yeah, I mean, they, they have, uh, the goals to to compete for a national championship every year in the last couple of years, they've done that. Um, you know, when Chris Peterson wanted to redo the, the the locker room and things like that in the last couple of years, um, Washington stepped up without hesitation and made sure that he had everything that he wanted. So in that sense, um, Jen Cohen has is, is, is been a great steward in, in terms of making great coaching hires. She was one of four people on the plane when Chris Peterson was on his way to Seattle, the other one being the old athletic director, Scott Woodward, and then Chris Peterson and his agent. So. Um, she was right there in the, in the midst of that. She was the one that helped kind of craft that whole thing with Chris Peterson, and then uh, getting Mike Hopkins on board, and we saw what he did. Ended up Pac-12 Coach of the Year in basketball. So uh, she's done a ph- phenomenal job, uh, not just in the in the hiring aspect of things, but also maintaining the uh, uh, the program and to make sure that it's uh, that it's in the black. So uh, they were expecting that they were going to be running in a bit of a deficit this last year or so, but. Uh, like I said before, the boosters have stepped up. So overall, I'd say the program's in pretty good fiscal health. The uh, Chris, the as far
3: as the um, facilities and stuff go, was there been some sort of arms race with Oregon? Oregon always doing that kind of stuff. Um, does Washington always felt like, hey, we got to try to keep up with what the Ducks are doing?
2: Well, I think I, I think that just not only goes to Washington, but I think that goes to every every program in the Pac-12 that competes and, and recruits against Oregon. Um, so I don't think that's necessarily a Washington issue. I think Oregon set the bar for everybody to improve and get better and and uh, you know compete in that arms race, quote unquote, at the level that they could without absolutely breaking the bank and and tearing their athletic departments apart. Um, so I think a lot of programs that maybe couldn't just outspend Oregon per se have had to get very creative. And you know you look at Oregon State, for instance. I think they've done a great job in terms of the long-term vision and the plan that they have in place to upgrade their facilities and things like that. You can see that coming together. And, uh, I know there's a lot of other programs in the PAC 12, they're doing the same thing. And Washington has already kind of been through that a little bit in terms of up- upgrading their football facilities, obviously the major overhaul with Husky stadium back in 2011, 2012. So, you know, they've had to do a lot of those things and that all kind of came in one big fell swoop. But, uh, um, yeah, I'd say that in general Oregon kind of set the bar for everybody and and I don't I don't I don't I don't know if they're necessarily below anybody at this point. I still think they're probably leading the Pac-12 in that in that sense, but uh I do feel like the gap's been um has shrunk just a little bit. I'm sure Washington has certainly uh felt like they've done their part to help uh kind of bridge the gap a little bit. Uh and you know what? As we all know, it's it's very very big in recruiting. Um, you know, when when you get the chance to show off your facilities and show off how they can be a part of your overall football experience and your college experience, that's a big part of it. And uh, and so I know Washington took that very, very seriously when they started to make these massive improvements.
0: I've been asking this question of everybody because we ask this first question in context of program goals, and it's always interesting to hear what those are for a particular program. You know, if it's a spectrum in the Pac-12 or USC as the goal of essentially being, you know, and a a national title contender every single season. Um, And say on the other end of the spectrum, you've got Oregon state who would love it. If they could make a bowl every other year, where does Washington stand on that? Do you think like, as it is right now where they are competing for the playoff every single year, is that sustainable? Is that the programs, you know, long-term goal to be that program essentially right there with USC every year, or what's the realistic program goal for Washington?
2: Well, I've been following Washington football since 1975 and that was Don James's first year. And I'll tell you what, that's, that was the goal of a Don James coach team at Washington. Every single year was to be there stride for stride with USC. And so whatever goal USC had for that season, Washington was supposed to be right there with them, whether it was a conference championship, whether it was a national championship, what have you, that was the, that was the plan. So I think in that sense, in the modern era, Washington, I think their goal has always been to to match a, a program like USC and and be right there with them because they have been the gold standard in the Pac 12 for the last however many decades you want to go back. So in that sense, yeah, I mean it's I think it's something that can certainly be achievable because Don James showed the way that it could happen in the in the 70s, eighties, and early nineties. And now Chris Peterson showing the way that he can pick it up. And I think Washington can certainly compete for a, for a North title every single year. And if you can compete with the North title every single year, competing for a pac 12 title just kind of goes hand in hand with that. And then of course the the next step from that is, is going into a new year six bowl every year. And then obviously the, the short step from that is getting into that final four. So I think all of those things should be very achievable for Washington, especially under Chris Peterson and then when the torch gets passed to the next coach, whoever that might be, that's the bar that's going to be set. And um, so I think right now, um, like Don James did when when he took over for Jim Owens, I think the next coach taking over for Chris Peterson is, is going to have a, a tough, tall job ahead of him because Chris Peterson has recalibrated the bar in much the way James did. Hey, Chris, so the second uh, topic we
3: have is recruiting. And so the question is does Washington have the first pick of the best recruits in the area and how valuable is that pool and then how is Washington thought of by national recruits.
2: Hmm. Well, it's interesting. The first question, does the school have the first pick of the best recruits in the area, how valuable is that pool? I think when you obviously look at recruiting territories out west, which is the the the, the main Recruiting territory for Washington, obviously, and most of the Pac-12 schools, maybe outside of Stanford, for instance. Um, I I don't know how valuable the pool is in the Seattle area or the state of Washington or in the Northwest in general, because when you any recruiting territory outside of Southern California, for instance, is going to look very meager in comparison, even even if you take into account all the islands in Hawaii or you take into account the, the entire state of Arizona, for instance, or the entire state of Utah. I, I just don't see when you compare it against Southern California that that uh, any of those other recruiting territories really stand up, or I mean, or even close. So in that sense, it's always been my contention ever since I started covering recruiting, you know, almost twenty years ago. You know, Southern California is the bellwether. So Southern California is the place that every Pac-12 school has to get at least three or four top prospects in order to consider their class a success. So, you know, when you look at the Northwest or you look at the Seattle area or the state of Washington in general, I think it's gotten better and better over the years. And, you know, there's always going to be a top recruit here, top recruit there. Um, you know, like this last class, you you could look at a Kyler Gordon or a Jacob Sermon or what have you. But in the past, you know, Stanford has always been the guy that has gotten the top recruits out of the state of Washington. You can go back and look at... Um, Oh, you can look at uh, Garnett, um, the offensive lineman. You can look at Foster Sorel, the offensive lineman. Both those guys were, you know, top five type guys on the West Coast when they were getting recruited, and they, they didn't hesitate in going to Stanford. In fact, they looked at Stanford as being their top school when they were young kids. And Garnett, um, he was a he was a Washington legacy, so. I think it's interesting because at the very, very, very top, whether you're talking about a, a Snoop Stewart back in the day who went to Oregon or what have you, I think it's been very hit and miss for Washington. Yeah, they've gotten a Reggie Williams. They've gotten a Casein Williams. They've gotten an Austin Safarian Jenkins. They've gotten a Jake Locker. But they've missed on the, some of the very, very, very top guys as well. But I would say for the most part, especially under Chris Peterson now, I think that that is changing somewhat. I think the guy that's going to be the real litmus test going forward, and it won't be this next recruiting class, it won't be for, for 18 or 19, it'll be for 2020, it'll be Savelle Smalls out of Garfield right here in the heart of Seattle, and whether or not uh, they can keep him. Because right now, we look in the top 24-7 for 2020, it was just released, and Savelle Smalls is considered the number three guy in the country. He is going to be the litmus test, I think, going forward to see whether or not Chris Peterson and those guys can hold on to a player the caliber of Savelle Smalls, I think he's going to be the guy that, that will really kind of test them and see if their, uh, their recruiting acumen can really hold up when you're going to have every college in the country come in their way to pick up a guy like him because he is a difference maker.
0: Yeah, I'm interested in your perspective on the comparison between Peterson and Don James from a recruiting perspective. How... Uh, how how do their strategies are they are they similar I mean how similar are they and also the makeup of these teams that Peterson's had the last couple years is it pretty similar to the makeup of you know the elite teams under Don James um, in terms of where the guys are coming from regionally
2: yeah I think there's there's similarities there for sure I think there's natural recruiting territories when you're up in the tucked in the very top corner of the country um, you know, the contiguous U.S., I wouldn't say Alaska, obviously, but <laughs> in Seattle, um, you really have to recruit from the inside out. And so when you talked about, when you asked how is the school of thought, you know, thought of by national recruits, I don't think Washington's really thought of much nationally in terms of, you know, they don't go to Florida, for instance, and get a ton of guys. They don't go back east and get a ton of guys. They're just starting to make some inroads again in places like Texas. Where they got arguably one of the top pass rushers a couple years ago in Levi Anzarique, um and which was considered a huge deal, and um, you know they just got another kid, Vic Kern, uh, offensive lineman who was considered who was very very highly thought of, and 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 a couple of Big Ten big time Big Ten schools tried to get on in on him late um, when he was about to sign. So they're just starting to make some inroads on some other places, and, and a lot of that is because of the Boise State connection. You guys like Scott Huff had a lot of presence down in that area when he was recruiting for Boise State, and so he's brought that over uh, to Washington. But again, I, th- I just think it's one of those things where when you're tucked in the corner, you, you go inside out. The natural recruiting territories are going to be the Northwest and they're going to be Hawaii, and they're going to be SoCal, or 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 you know just California in general. They've Washington's obviously gotten a ton of guys from the Bay Area. Vita Vea is, is obviously the most logical example from uh, just these last few classes. Um, you know, so that's that's always kind of been the the way it's been there. And um, I think the reason why there are some valid comparisons between Don James and Chris Peterson, for instance, is that both of them really relied on their uh, on their evaluators and their, uh, their area coaches to really lay the groundwork and that they would come in, they would have their visit, they would do their thing. But they were not the guys that were really going to be the focal points for even the top, top guys. They would really kind of let their coaches uh, do their thing. They wouldn't micromanage. But when it came time to close, their thought was, okay, if these are the guys you really want, if, if these are the guys that we really need to go to battle with and you're comfortable with them, you, okay, I need to know because I'm going to close these guys, and I think Don James and, and Chris Peterson are very, very good when it comes to closing guys. When it comes to close, going into homes, going into living rooms, selling parents um, on just their their approach, their non no nonsense approach, their frankness. Um, you know, again, we can talk about the Built for Life program for Peterson. Our kind of guys, the OKGs that everyone talks about. And, and that's a program that's even been emulated. I know that uh, when Rich Rodriguez was at Arizona, he used to talk about OKGs, too. So these are things that are that are common throughout a lot of other programs in the Pac-12. But Chris Peterson's been he's starting to get known for them and uh, known for for kind of really touting the entire experience at Washington. So, you know, I think it is something that sells to very particular recruits and and. In that sense, I think they're starting to go up against the Stanford's of the world and the UCLA's of the world, for instance, a little bit more than they would have in the past in terms of actually being competitive. Because I think, again, Stanford's been in that unique perspective and that unique situation where um, there's been a lot of kids that have just grown up going, okay, academically, that's the place you go. And if I place any value on academics that's that's the, the the place that has the perception of the best academics in the country on the West Coast is Stanford. So I think now Washington's starting to try to challenge that a little bit with the way Chris Peterson approaches things, and I think Don James had a little bit of that as well because he was able to get some guys that were really serious about Stanford to stay at home and go to Washington. So those are some of the reasons why I think there are some similarities between those two guys, and, and obviously I think their records also at least – the way Chris Peterson has started out his his career at Washington as the head coach, kind of there bears some similarities there in terms of the win loss.
3: Hey Chris, one last hey, Chris, thing go. on the recruiting side uh, when when you look at a coach at Boise State like Chris Peterson was winning all the games, um, people see them take you know two and three star recruits and develop them into uh, guys that can you know make it to the NFL. And the question is always, well, is he going to want to continue to recruit those kind of guys, or is he going to go after the? the biggest name guys on the board. How do you think Chris Peterson's adapted to doing that, getting going out and going after the four and five star guys that you try to obviously develop and make them even better?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. And I I think that the real thing that kind of defines how Chris Peterson evolved his recruiting philosophy and strategy when he moved from Boise state to Washington is the level of competition they were going up against. So, You know Boise State can develop guys that can go into the NFL, and that hasn't changed with him at Washington. He will tell you flat out, the first thing that he always looks for in an OKG and a guy who he can see as a built-for-life kind of guy is a guy that he wants to try to put in the NFL first. They have to be able to be great football players. So I don't think that changes too much. But I do think in terms of the level of athleticism, in terms of the level of how high is their ceiling physically, that's where you start to see a little bit of the differences because they're not going up against the Fresno States and the Utah States and the BYUs and the New Mexicos and the Colorado States anymore. They're going up against Pac-12 Powers. I mean, they're playing Auburn in in September down in Atlanta. I mean, they're going up against big, big big-time programs. And that's not to say the guys at Boise State couldn't do that. I mean, shoot, they went to – you know they went to to atlanta and beat georgia i mean they they beat virginia tech they've beaten oklahoma i mean they they could do that but that's after developing a program for a, num- a number of years and having a lot of success and having a senior junior and senior laden team that where a guy like tim saha the strength and conditioning guy who moved from boise state to washington had his hands on him for two or three years and turned them into, you know, from six, four, 270 pound guys to six, five, 310 pound guys. And so I think it's not so much in terms of just getting the, the, the guys that are coachable and the guys that, that uh, they can trust to play the position. They need all of that as a baseline, but now they need to get those guys who they know can physically compete, can hold up in PAC 12 play. Because there's so many guys now as true freshmen that are looking to play right away. And that's a, that's an aspect of recruiting that people have to, have to understand and acknowledge that a lot of times playing time is a huge part of why a guy goes to a certain school. And so they need to have guys that are physically ready to handle that and can hold up throughout an entire Pac-12 se- season. And those kind of guys are a little different than maybe guys that they would have targeted for Mountain West play, for instance. And I, I think that's just a... I think that's just a, a fact of life.
0: All right, we've got one final section here. Uh, this is to, doing with the uh, politics of the school. Um, does football have the necessary institutional support and competence from the school administration? How would you describe the factional divisions among the fan base, boosters, and insiders?
2: Well, it, again, going, you know, having 22 wins the last two years, I don't know if there are any factional divisions among the fan base, um, it, it, it's, it is crazy. I mean, if, as long as you win, it, it feels like the coach can get whatever he wants and they're willing to, to give him whatever he wants. And so in that sense, I don't think Chris Peterson and Washington are any different than any other school in the country. Um, you know, if you're doing well and the, and, the, and the people are coming through the gate and you're putting in, you're putting 70,000 butts in the seats every game, Now, yeah, I mean, the the only faction really that I've seen in the last few years is just when the Pac-12 contract came up with the with the TV guys, with the ESPNs and the Foxes of the world. And now all of a sudden, you know, when you have 12 regular season games and 11 of them start at 5 p.m. or later, which is what happened last year with Washington, you're going to have a lot of people complaining, especially the 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 old the the white hairs that don't want to stay up that late and don't want to travel to and from and Again, when you're looking at a fan base in Washington that has a lot of tradition and a lot of heritage and a lot of people that grew up with it that are my age and, and a lot older, it's hard for them. They don't necessarily live in downtown Seattle anymore. They don't. They live two three hours away, and for them to come, make a round trip, get home at one or two in the morning after going to a late game, it's not easy for people to do that on a weekly basis. And so, yeah, the only faction that I've seen is is that the kind of the 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 the, the pushback on the TV times and things like that. But that, again, that's that's more Washington and a lot of other fan bases in the Pac-12 against the Pac-12 and, and, and something that they that the chancellors and the presidents are going to have to deal with uh, at some point. And so, again, I, I would say that might be the only division, but I would say it's only a division in the sense that they're united uh, in their common enemy which is the kind of the TV schedule and how they have to kind of work around it. In terms of the the necessary institutional support, I'd say, you know, when you have the current president in place at Washington, which is Anna Marie Kausay, when you have her as the person who hired Jen Cohen, and again, I'd have to go back. I didn't do the necessary research before this, but I'd have to go and see: is there another school in the country, or at least a Power Five school? that has the president and the athletic director both female, both women. I don't know. But I, I think there's some – obviously the commonality there and the shared interest and 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 what have you I think is something that, that's going to really keep uh, Cohen in really good stead. And, and the other thing is she's just really damn good at her job. I mean she's done a phenomenal job, and she's given um, the president of Washington, President Cal State, she's given her nothing to um, – you know, nothing to, to look at and go, okay, this is a problem. This is going to be an issue. Um, you know, you look at all this stuff with the NCAA scandal right now with the federal investigation and all that, even though it touched Washington with Markel Fultz, everything's already been kind of done. I mean, I don't know how they can retroactively do anything with Washington because everybody's gone. I mean, Lorenzo Romar has gone. Rafael Chilios is gone. Michael Porter Sr. is gone. Fultz is, you know, in the NBA. So there's, there are things that have happened within the athletic department and, and Jen Cohen will be the first one to tell you there's going to be things that are going to happen in the athletic department down the road. I mean, there's going to be a, there'll probably be something that handles uh, something that deals with sexual abuse or something like it. It just, it seems like there's something that's always going to touch every single athletic department in the country in some way, shape or form. I mean, you just can't avoid it. There's no one that's going to be in a bubble. And, but I think, President Kause feels like the Athletic Department of Washington is very well equipped to handle whatever situation comes its way because of the transparency between the university and the athletic department, because of the communication because uh between President Kause and Jen Cohen, for instance, and just the just how they've approached it in general. And um, so I think the 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 respect and the the support between the parties, between upper campus and what's going on um, over in Graves and, and over at Husky Stadium and Hecked and all the athletic facilities, I think is is really really strong right now. And and I think the overall health of the athletic department uh, also reflects that support from the from the school and the administration.
3: Hey, Chris. So hey Chris. when you when you hire a guy like Chris Peterson, uh, he's a you know unique personality. Uh, there's going to be certain. I don't know if it would say request, but there's certain he's got a certain way of doing things. Was there any kind of pushback or was there any kind of conflict when he came in and wanted to do things a certain way that maybe the school wasn't used to doing? Or was it completely like, hey, you you have your philosophy. We're going to let you come in and instill, you know, instill whatever systems you need to, however you want to do it. Uh, it, it seemed like that went pretty
2: smoothly. But how did how did you think that went? Yeah, I, I think, right. I think it all came down to fit. When it, I mean, because they both Jen Cohen and Chris Peterson, in their initial press conference, talked how much fit was so important to them, and that's the reason why Chris Peterson didn't take a job earlier. He could have gone, as you guys know, he could have gone a number of places. I think USC uh, was it was a team that was linked with Chris Peterson for for a while there. Um, you know, there were a lot of other places that he could have gone. Stanford. I mean, there's, there's there's there were places. I mean, he coached at Oregon and or and all. You know, you always heard the Oregon, you know, Peterson to Oregon rumors for years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think it's just one of those things where his reputation was such not just as a coach, but just as, as, as someone as, as an administrator, as a teacher and his program and what he's about was so strongly connected to what Washington was looking for and what Jen Cohen was looking for in the next Washington coach that I think she was willing to give him a lot of rope in terms of whatever he wanted. I don't know if there were certain requests or certain things that he asked for that were a sticking point or were just going to be a no-go because it just doesn't seem like that's that. – first of all, I don't think that's his style. I think he's one of those guys that is just – he can, if he needs something, he's going to tell you, and then he's going to explain exactly why you need it. And so I think he's always going to make a very compelling case for why he would need a certain thing, like why he wanted the locker rooms redesigned. Uh, why he wanted to give his guys certain things, why he needs to uh, have raises for his assistance in such and such a fashion to allow a guy like Jimmy Lake to become the defensive coordinator, to keep him on board, to make sure that all of his coaches are happy. Because when they're happy, they're doing their jobs, it allows him to do his job, he doesn't have to micromanage, and all the other things that come along with that. So I think it's not really Peterson's style to go above and beyond and just say, "Well, you know, I need a I need a hot tub in my bathroom," you know. I don't I don't think I don't think he made any court like Harbaugh style uh, <laughs> concessions when Harbaugh was at Stanford. You know, like I, I don't know if you ever guys you guys ever saw his bathroom, but it was pretty nice. <laughs> uh, but you know, just so I don't think that's I, I don't think that's really his his lane. And and again, I don't think um, I think the level of communication, the level of admiration um, between Cohen and Peterson. I think it's very much a a two way street with that. I think it goes both ways. Um, I think it just lent itself to a nice fit. And, um, I don't think at least I, to answer your question quickly, I, I can't think of anything he didn't get right off the bat. I certainly didn't hear about anything, but I also don't think it would have been, uh, anything out of the realm. And I think anything that he would have asked for would have been entirely reasonable.
0: All right, should we get to uh, some of the listener questions, Ryan?
2: Yeah, we got the, with Eric, Eric Flow. Really?
0: Yeah, it looks like Eric's first question he pretty much answered about Savelle Smalls. Yeah. Um, but number two, uh, he says, uh, we hear so much lately about the importance of branding in college football recruiting and overall success. What is UW's primary branding message?
2: I think their primary branding message, at least the thing that, that Chris Peterson and his coaches really, really stress, at least from what I've seen in talking to the recruits and the high school coaches and everyone else, is just the overall experience at Washington and how it's not for everybody. It's the OKG thing. It's it's the mantra. It's They need their kind of guys, guys that are willing to give 100% on the field, in the classroom, in the weight room, in treatment, um, in study hall, in you know, uh, in the, in the training table, you know, make sure, make sure you give a hundred percent to that, to those, to that bowl of potato salad over there. You know, it's like, I, I think it's just one of those things where I think they, they really treat this thing as a, as a very unique opportunity for kids and it's not for everybody. And I think that's also reflected in the fact that, you know, Washington gives out maybe a quarter of the scholarships that in Oregon does, for instance, I mean, if you look at it, I think Oregon's offered over 200-some guys uh, for the 2018 class, and I think Washington's offered maybe 60 to 70. It's just they really are selective, and they really want to impress upon a recruit and his family and the coaching staff of that high school that when you get offered by the University of Washington, it actually means something. It's not just a throwaway offer. Oh, I offered this guy at your high school? Well, I better offer that guy at your high school, too. It, they don't work that way. It just It's just a different type of thing. And I think that's their branding, is that they they want this thing to be a unique experience because they feel that in the end, when a kid leaves the University of Washington with a degree and a professional opportunity, that they'll understand that what they did, it was probably the toughest four or five years of their lives, but it was also the, the by far the most rewarding four or five years of their lives as well. I think we got one okay, last go. one from Eric. He says we never hear
3: about the strength and conditioning program, particularly the off-season work by the football team. What is made, uh, Tim Socha? I think that's how you say his name. Strength and conditioning. Sa- Saha. Saha. Sim-ta- Tim Saha. Yeah, it's S O C H A, and they say Saha. Yep, it's wow. Saha. Yeah, Interesting. I know. Go figure. Okay, uh, strength and conditioning coach, so successful, and please don't mention the Alabama fourth quarter program mario cristobal is mimicking at oregon thanks and go dogs that's from eric
2: well first of all the reason why you don't ever hear from tim saha is because he doesn't want to be heard from um, back in the day when when washington was under uh, steve sarkisian the uh strength and conditioning coach as you guys probably well know is ivan lewis and ivan kind of made his his hay at, at usc um ivan was a little bit more outspoken we used to get Ivan on the radio all the time. We used to call it strength coach radio. And he used to go through all the different things about what they would do and all this, that it's, I wouldn't say it's proprietary with a guy like Tim Saha. I just think he really feels like everything that they do, it's all about the team. And so even though he's not on the field with them, even though he's not coaching them, he treats everything they do as a vital part of what gets them prepared for game day and him and Chris Peterson see so eye to eye on all of this stuff. And, and I think that's also the, the reason why no one ever hears from him is that he is a reflection of Chris Peterson in that way. Cause if Chris Peterson had his way, he'd never do any media. He's great at it when he does it, but he just doesn't like doing it. He didn't want to do it. Not interested in it. Doesn't see the value in it. Um, so I think, I think Tim Saha is, is, and mimics his boss in, in that way and in and in every way. So that's the biggest reason you don't hear about it is that they don't they don't want any sort of attention put on them. They don't want a light shine uh, to to be shine on their on their program. And yeah, you hear things like, oh, Tim Saw was just named the Strength and Conditioning Coach of the Year last year by whoever. Um. So and I think the people that really follow the program understand just how vital Tim Saha is. He is really an unsung hero when it comes to Washington football. But the reason he's unsung is because he wants to be unsung. He don't, he don't, he don't look, he's not looking for the limelight. He's not looking for any of that stuff. We ask him constantly for an interview to talk about anything, everything, whatever they're doing, because it's obviously working. And he shuns us every time, and he does it with a smile. And the guy is a hulk. So when he says <laughs> no, he means no. So it's just not going to happen. So, yeah, I'd love to tell Washington fans all about what's going on within the strength and conditioning program at Washington. But, unfortunately, it's, it's kept uh, it's kept quiet, and it's kept behind closed doors in a way that's – I think that's almost pretty unique in, in college football nowadays. All
3: right. Chris Fetters, follow him on Twitter, at Chris underscore Fetters. He's the editor of dogman.com. Chris, thanks so much for coming on and uh, talking some Washington football. Anytime, guys. Anytime. So, uh, thanks, just a Chris. Pe- yeah, thanks, Chris. So Washington starts spring ball in a couple weeks, so we're not going to get an update there. Um, but we'll we'll definitely check in with you, Chris, when spring ball starts. Okay. No, it sounds good, guys. All right. That was uh, Washington with Chris Fetters. Now we're going to talk some Washington State Cougars. With Barry Bolton. He's the managing editor at CougFan.com. Follow him on Twitter at CougFan.com. Barry, thanks so much for coming on, man. What's up?
1: Thanks for
0: having me on today, guys. Yeah, we really appreciate it, Barry. Uh, You are the final school in our deep dive series. Uh, This is the series going into the infrastructure of each Pac-12 school. And so we're just going to dive right in. We're going to talk resources, recruiting, and politics of Washington State. Um, And I'm going to start with resources. Uh, Barry, does Washington State, Have the money to meet its program goals? Are its facilities adequate and modern? And does it have the financial ability to make a sudden, high-quality coaching change if it wants?
1: Interesting questions. Um, In terms of football, no expense has been spared over the last seven years. And the results, frankly, are impressive. Washington State has been able to construct incredible facilities and 26 wins over the last three seasons. And if you look at the last three seasons, Washington State is third in the Pac-12 with 19 wins. They trail only Stanford and USC, which are tied uh, at the top with 21 Pac-12 wins. So Washington State has been able to put the the money forward. Um, The football facilities, they're they're not just adequate and and modern. They're outstanding. Um, In basketball, I'd say the facilities are adequate for now. But the real issue with hoops, uh, interestingly enough, for Washington State is, is charter flights for both road trips and recruiting. That was an issue that drove Dick Bennett to distraction. And ultimately, that was a huge factor in Washington State losing Tony Bennett to go to Virginia. Um, as for resources to make a sudden high-quality coaching change if it wanted Both Mike Leach and Ernie Kent are in five-year perpetual rollover situations on their contracts. So it would cost a small fortune for Wazoo to buy out either one. The reality is simply that until Washington State fans start donating at the same levels as the rest of their Pac-12 compatriots, that kind of flexibility is going to be tough to come by.
3: Uh, Barry, when I was up there last, um, obviously the the stadium renovation is awesome. I didn't get to, to like tour some of the other facilities, but I had what people were were talking about. It was just it was just amazing. Um, how did that come to be that they they wanted to make this massive upgrade? Uh, and you know, just let people know like kind of when that was happening and what was the the motivation behind it.
1: Well, the motivation was simply that Washington State needed to keep up with the Joneses as far as facilities went. They, their facilities, they had kind of done what they could in the existing infrastructure, but they needed a football-only complex. And so um, they didn't have the money to do it on hand. They couldn't pay for it 100%, so they had to take out bonds. And But it was something that the former athletic director, Bill Moose, and correctly so, in our opinion, at cookfan.com correctly so said, we have to do this, and and we'll pay for it as we go. But getting that five-story football-only complex up with state-of-the-art everything from weights to hydrotherapy training to, you know, the football offices, everything that went into that place um, had to be done. Uh, If I remember right, gosh, I want to say it was a $86 million price tag or something like that, but it, it was it was worth it. They had to do it. And since they've done it, they've been able to recruit a better athlete to Washington State. Um, facilities matter in recruiting, as I'm sure both of you you know. And by being able to do that, to get that in there, to keep up with the competition and really, quite frankly, surpass a lot of the other Pac-12 schools at the time that that football complex came into being a couple of years ago um, was a huge step. in in being able to accomplish what Washington Washington State has in the last three seasons.
0: We've, uh, kind of in context of this question, we ask about program goals, and I'm interested to know kind of what those are for Washington State. You know, for like the USC's of the world, it's compete for a national championship every single year, like be in that national conversation, be a top 10 team every single year. For the Oregon States of the world, it's let's make a bowl game, let's let's really shoot for making a bowl game every year, but if it's every other year, that's fine too. Where does Washington State kind of fall in that spectrum? Like what would be kind of the baseline, everyone's good with this program in perpetuity? Like what level of winning is that?
1: I think Washington State um, universally wants to compete for the Pac-12 North title every year uh, going out. I think before in the past, if you go back 10 or 15 years, there was probably a large faction of the the fan base it was probably okay with going to a bowl every other year competing for for a bowl um that time has passed washington state wants to compete for that pac-12 north title every year and they want to break through and and get that they've been awfully close the last couple years but uh they want to get that and they want to compete for the the pac-12 title as well
3: uh all right let's move on we have uh, the second topic is recruiting so does washington state have the first pick of the best recruits in the area and how valuable is that pool and how is washington state thought of by national recruits
1: well if you're talking about in its area uh the huskies have owned recruiting in this state for oh i'd say the last hundred years um the cougars (laughs) we'll always pull in a few solid homegrowns every year for sure. And there are times that they'll they'll beat out Washington here and there for a guy that maybe Washington lost somebody on their board. They come back in on, on their plan B guy. That's a Wazoo commit, and, and he ends up staying with Wazoo. But my sense, and it's certainly not a unique opinion, the resources are best used to recruit California where you have 100 times the number of athletes pack 12 level athletes than you do in the state of Washington, but still it's important to recruit to your own backyard. Um, it gets alumni more generated, interested and Washington state uh, has a challenge there because the Huskies, as I said, they, they've really owned recruiting in this state. There are also guys that are, top the line, every class that will go outside the state. They won't pick UW or Wazoo, but uh, uh, the Huskies have pretty much own recruiting in the state of Washington. There's really no other way to say it in terms of national recruits, Mike Leach and the air raid offense. I think get the Cougars into a number of doors around the country that they might not otherwise, and that they weren't doing before Leach came along. Generally speaking, Uh, Washington State recruiting tends to be about taking a handful of four-star prospects here and there, but really focusing on the three-star recruits and and coaching those guys up. And you also win some of those battles on the three-star guys that other teams in the Pac-12, frankly, missed on and were underrated when you have the benefit of hindsight. Again, I I go back to the three-year period. If you compare the recruiting rankings between Washington State and UCLA, It's no contest. On paper, given the recruiting rankings, UCLA has a wide disparity over Washington State. But in the last three years, Washington State, with its lower-ranked recruits, have 19 Pac-12 wins, and UCLA has 11. So that says something there.
0: Absolutely. And uh, it speaks, obviously, to the coaching and developing going on uh, under Leach. When you look at um, uh, kind of what Mike Price did um, historically, at Washington State and the guys he was doing it with and now what Mike Leach is doing, is there a common formula between them in terms of recruiting, like in terms of either the regions they're recruiting and what kind of the makeup of the team is? Like, is it 50% California, 60% California? Is there any commonality there or has it been, was it kind of two different strategies?
1: The the numbers-wise, pure volume is very similar. Um, the, the bulk is certainly from California. Recruiting's starting to change a little bit over the last two, three cycles where you see a lot more states involved. There's not a lot of guys coming from those states, but instead of Washington and the Pacific Northwest making up, you know, 22 of the 25 members of a class, you're seeing California still be far and away number one. Washington the Pacific Northwest has maybe three, four, five, but then there's a whole bunch of states Uh, maybe seven or eight where you pick one out of Arizona you get two out of Utah. So there is a little bit more. The the reach is extending a little bit into those ancillary areas. I think the bigger commonality, as you said, uh, between price and and leach in recruiting is found in the offensive linemen. They both have the, the same philosophy. You get big athletic guys, and that have not really fully, they're not fully formed coming out of high school. They might be 240, 250, 260 pounds. And you get them in the training table in the weight room and get a red shirt year on them. And those guys are blossoming in, into the, the big 300 pounders, but they're athletic. That's the biggest thing is to get guys with great feet. For Mike Leach, obviously, you want to get that offensive lineman that is going to be able to excel in uh, in pass blocking in the vertical uh, vertical set. But um, you have to have the athleticism first before you put the bulk on. Price, you know, operated certainly a different offense, but he had the same basic philosophy. You, You were taking long, rangy guys with room on their frame to build out, but you had to have that athleticism up front to begin with, both with Price and with Leach.
3: Hey Barry, we had a question either a, a week or two ago uh, about Washington State and essentially about how uh, recruiting the defensive front. Uh, obviously, in January, Alex Grinch uh, went back home to Ohio. Uh, you know, you, uh, Washington State's former uh, defensive coordinator, kind of a different philosophy with the front, where you know, like you had a Hercules Mataafa, like you know, being the biggest guy there. It wasn't It was an undersized defensive line, and the question I had to deal with. Is that the way Washington State's going to kind of recruit uh, and play going forward, even with Alex Grinch not there?
1: That's a really good question. And I I think some of it we're just going to have to, to wait and see. But I think we've gotten a few hints from the new defensive coordinator, Tracy Clays. What Alex Grinch did is if they were going to have to sacrifice something, they were going to sacrifice size and they were going to go after speed. And so uh, Hercules Mata'afa, by the way, is is the exception. He's the anomaly. You don't see guys that are 250 pounds just have that kind of natural strength and and quick two steps like he did. But in general, what Grinch wanted to do up front and really throughout the defense was just a major, major emphasis on speed. You might be a little undersized, but you were going to make up for it by covering more ground and getting more people, more hats on the ball. With Clay's. He certainly is going to uh, stick with the speed. But I think the identity um, maybe won't be so much as as number one speed. It's going to be speed. It's going to be toughness. It's going to be preparation. What Clays was known for at Minnesota was really having a great defense on third down and in the red zone. And I think the toughness and preparation part of it will come from that. Uh, I think you might still see some guys that that might be undersized simply because, you know, it's pretty hard to find the the guys that can really run who are, you know, 300 pounds up on the defensive line. And I think in, in general the Pac-12 and college are, are all kind of going that way where they'll get a little bit smaller, but they're going to more than make up for uh, with speed. But I think we'll see a little bit different identity in how Washington State recruits on defense, but I don't think it's going to be a wholesale change. I think it will will stay close to the defensive blueprint that Alex Grinch introduced at Washington State over his three years, and it was something that obviously proved highly successful in taking a a defense that before Grinch showed up uh, in the previous years had had really been, uh, frankly, abysmal in a lot of areas. And by by the end of year three, um, statistically wise, also in in simply just taking over some games and swarming to the football, uh, that defense really came alive. And that that was the key for Washington State last year in in gauging their nine wins. The offense wasn't terrible by any means. It was still the air rate. It was productive. But it wasn't as good as uh, expected or many projected it to be. It was the defense that really carried the day last season overall.
0: And then our final section uh, is covering the politics. Um, Does football have the necessary institutional support and competence from the school administration? How would you describe the factional divisions among the fan base, boosters, and
1: insiders? Football has tremendous support at Washington State from uh, new president Kirk Schultz. I say new president. He's been on the job for about one and a half years. But like his predecessor, Elson Floyd, Schultz, truly understands the the old adage that athletics is the front porch to the broader university, that the better you do in sports, especially football, the more favorably viewed your entire university is. Uh, Schultz was the president at Kansas State for many years, and, and he really did a tremendous job of supporting athletics through fundraising and facilities, and we're starting to see the beginning of that at Washington State as far as fundraising goes. As for uh, factional divisions, I I really don't think that applies to Washington State in in any notable way, really. Pullman is a college town, and it's not – everyone does kind of know everyone, and if you have an issue, well, you just talk it out. I think that uh, the the family feel uh, is obviously an overused phrase in college and especially college football recruiting – but that doesn't make it any less true, and I think the family feel at Washington State does play itself out in a lot of different ways.
3: the uh, Barry, some, you know Mike Leach's name came up during this last coaching carousel, a number of different situations. It, it is like a you know like a small town family feel family atmosphere when you When you hear that, when the head coach's name is being you know talked about for other jobs, did that cause any kind of friction or any problems?
1: I think it absolutely caused a lot of consternation. Um, I, I think mostly it's been put on the back burner, but if this next off season comes along and, and we see something again where, you know, there's a lot of reports about leech at Tennessee or leech here, or leach there. Um, yeah. I, I think that uh, that does have the absolute ability to cause disruption, but I don't think that's any different than any other school. I think that, the fan base, the alumni, the boosters. I think everybody tends to freak out when something like that comes along. What's interesting about that whole stuff too now is these days there's a lot of different reports, but they might not have a lot to do with what's what is really going on. A lot of those reports these days are generated by the coach's agent to try and move some pieces on, on the board and, cause some some issues you know they might want a to fall before b and things like that now the one with tennessee uh was absolutely true there there that wasn't anything being generated by the agents and there was uh uh, depending on which report you believe and and uh, which source for which media organization there was certainly something to that it didn't come to pass but uh certainly that has the the ability to especially with the the new early recruiting period that has the ability to to create a lot of chaos in a really short period of time and not just for Washington state, but for any school.
0: Um, Well, that's, that's pretty much it for the deep dive series. I did want to ask about one other thing. Um, Obviously we all uh, heard the tragic news in the off season about Tyler Holinsky. What's uh, first, I I mean, I'm sure you knew him. So uh, our condolences, uh, but also, uh, what's been kind of the mood and feeling around the program, around the the city lately, with just everything that happened there.
1: I think that it's been a a slow process to heal, and I think it's certainly still ongoing. Uh, this isn't something that you know is is tragic, and then you get over a week and you kind of move forward. Um, everybody's different. Every football player who you know is on that team uh, and experienced you know tyler is a teammate each person is dealing with it in a, in a different way and at a different speed but i think that spring football is going to be pretty important coming up uh, it starts on march 22nd this is going to be the first time that they did their winter conditioning you know the the two-week off-season circuit but spring football will be the first time that they're out there on the field and without having number three next to them and and tyler was uh, I'm sure that, that you've heard, um, I'm sure most of the listeners have heard, was just a, a beacon of light. I mean, he always had a smile on his face. He was always happy. He was one of the most beloved guys on that team. Everyone thought of him as, you know, um, their best friend. And, and it's rare to have a guy like that. Um, and so it's it's a huge loss. Uh, it was a devastating thing when it happened back in january and it's still going on and it's going to go on for a while um, beyond spring football and into fall camp and everything else but uh i think that you know they're they're going in the right direction um as a team we'll see a lot more in in the spring and you know guys will will hopefully just enjoy playing football again because at that young age and, and losing a guy like that that's uh that, that's a huge thing that, you know, a group of 18- to 22-year-olds um, is having to deal with, and, and it's a tough deal all around. He was he was a great, great player, but he was an even better teammate and person, and he is uh, sorely and will continue to be sorely missed.
3: Yeah, un- unbelievable. Just way too young, and, uh, I, you know, we'll be watching uh, your reports from spring football. Uh, I'm sure they're going to do something really special and you'll be curious to see how the team bounces back and um and use you know maybe it's used as motivation um i don't know i mean how many scholarship quarterbacks are are there for the spring because that that should be interesting to watch too
1: well that's that's probably the number one storyline coming out of spring is what is washington state going to do a quarterback because it's um it's really tenuous in college football that you know, if you lose one guy, obviously Washington State lost a guy in a way that they, they never uh, could even conceive of. But if you lose that guy, because Tyler was, was your starter. He was, you know, heading into his fourth-year junior year. But none of the other guys on that roster have taken a single snap uh, as a as cook. There's, like, a junior college, you know, uh, kid here. And, and uh, the number three quarterback last year, Trey Tinsley, served as the holder and such. But nobody's taken a snap under center and so you've got five guys um that are going to be competing this spring i don't think anything's going to be settled this spring uh you'll have some leading candidates you've got a true freshman quarterback there in and cooper and you know going into the year uh in january you pretty much thought well this kid's and cooper comes in with a lot of fanfare and he's um Looked at as as a guy who can be a real special player, especially when you look at him in Mike Leach's air raid. But he was going to be fitted for a red shirt. Um, you're not going to play your true freshman quarterback. Well, that's now absolutely on the table. Um, Cam Cooper might be the guy. Trey Tinsley could be. Anthony Gordon, who's going to be a fourth year junior, um, came out of junior college, hasn't quite. Uh, blossom the way that I expected him to. Maybe this is his corner turn. And you've got a walk-on in John Bledsoe, obviously famous last name, and you know <laughs> his father Drew started Washington State. But um, quarterback is going to be extraordinarily interesting, along with the large number of assistant coaches turnover that Washington State had. And the other thing uh, in this uh, whole story is Washington State is going to be looking for a postgraduate transfer quarterback. Now, whether they, they get one, is really going to be dependent on one that Mike Leach likes, as well as the guy that, that wants to transfer to WSU, because those guys are usually in pretty high regard. The the kid out of Penn State, Tommy Stevens, is going to be one to watch in that regard if he chooses to, to move on. If he does, he's going to be the rarest of the rare. He's going to be one of those transfer quarterbacks that actually comes in with two to play two, which would be exactly what Tyler Helinski was going to be this year. A guy with two more seasons to, to play too. So quarterback will be fascinating to watch this spring um, and I think it will be fascinating to watch beyond the spring and going into to fall camp in the season.
3: All right, Dave. That's, that's it, right?
1: Yep, that's it for me.
3: All right. Barry Bolton does a great job. Managing editor of CookFan.com. Follow on Twitter at coog fancom. barry thanks so much for coming on and uh completing our in-depth series of all the pac 12 schools somehow we got through them all and we got to finish off with washington state great information we appreciate it so much
1: it was my pleasure you guys do a great job on the podcast i love them thanks barry
3: well dave pretty good stuff we had uh washington and washington state fin- i can't believe we did all 12 we did all 12 pac 12 schools
0: I can't believe we knocked it all out and we did it all in like a reasonable time frame. Like it didn't take us besides the one brief interlude with biggins to do the signing day recap. It didn't take us longer than a week to get any of these guys.
3: No, seven, seven weeks. So we did six shows in seven weeks and we obviously, we did the signing day show. Um, I guess now we'll just get back to, we'll do some shows talking about spring football, but like the Washington schools, neither one of them have even started yet. And other schools, you know, started way earlier.
0: Yeah, it's uh, we'll have to we'll have to actually game plan that and maybe send some emails out and get some uh, reports from people.
3: Yeah, this would be good. Well, we got some questions too. Should we jump into those or?
0: Let's do it.
3: So first up, we got a lot, man. I guess uh, so. I was out of town, so we didn't do our like normal Monday show. So I think it gave people time to send more questions in. Oh uh,
0: yeah,
3: Earl in West LA. So this is a follow-up for R.J. Abadia, who talked about Stanford last week.
0: But whatever, we'll answer it anyway. Yeah,
3: because we're we're not having R.J. on again because, you know, we had other people on. But he said, Stanford fans travel very well for post-game bowl games. Uh, R.J. said this. He said they exceeded ticket allotments in the recent past for Rose Bowls, the Orange Bowl, and other bowl games. So what happened to them at the Pac-12 championship game last December? I was there, and it felt like a USC home game. Inside and outside the stadium. How does he explain that? Well, it's pretty far, though, I would say, right? That's early West LA. I mean, that's a long way to go to Santa Clara from from Palo yeah, Alto.
0: No, huge distance. You know what I would say? Our, our man, RJ, did a great job last week. He was wilding out a little bit. Yeah. He, he, had, he, had, he had a few wild statements <laughs> out there. Um, one was that Stanford is the most applied to university in the country, which is. Uh, that's not the case. Um, they had had their most applications ever, I think, this past cycle, so it might have been a slight conflation. But you know what? He was on a roll. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think it's probably all relative. I think compared to Stanford's fan travel in the past, I think they're probably doing a better job than they did in the past, but um, I don't think Stanford, they're just never going to have that level of fan base that's going to travel super deep to anything. I think what they do now is travel about as well as like, an average program. I think that would probably be a fair assessment of what Stanford does now. And that is wildly like disproportionate compared to their past when they basically traveled to no one. So I think that's more what's going on there.
3: Yeah. I mean, if you're a Stanford fan, you literally, it would take you a while, but you could walk to the Pac-12 championship game, right? Like you could have walked that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's like a, it would be like a, a like actually what is the distance? I think it might even be less than that. I might be,
3: I think we, we had you cut out there for a second. So what were you saying distance-wise?
0: I was saying that it would be like a long day's walk. Okay. But I'm actually going to look this up real quick. Nice. So, yeah, it's 14 miles. Okay. So it's like a, a, a decent hike, like yeah. a decent like, hike that you could do in like a, you know, a, a four-hour period in the afternoon if it was all uphill and stuff.
3: Yeah, like it, it's a half marathon. Basically, you could you could run it in a couple hours if you if you were running. Yeah,
0: and you could walk it in four, <laughs> five, maybe.
3: But he was right. I mean, it, it wasn't. Uh, I would not say it was well attended by Stanford fans, and you know, but whatever. He did. Yeah, he did go on Twitter and uh, and and back off some of the statements, or at least one of them.
1: Yeah,
0: no, he was he, he was great. He was great. Not uh, not gonna dog our man RJ. No, it's hard. It's hard to be a hundred percent. All right, uh, this is from Evan. Noodle Armageddon. Uh, Ryan and Dave, as one of the few Husky fans in Washington that agrees with your assessment of Jake the Cannon Browning being a <laughs> clear top 10 quarterback in the conference, it is with great sadness that I come to the realization that this will be his final year. What that really means, gentlemen, is that this is the final year I can enjoy hearing non-homers, i.e. you, rag on the lack of arm strength Browning has. With Eason on deck and then two top 10, two top 100 incoming freshmen after him, Montlake will no longer be serving noodles each Saturday. Promise that you'll make this year a special one and remembering the greatness of Browning's arm. Obviously PS real question time. How big of a deal is it that the Huskies defense will be facing Jake e- Jacob Eason on the scout team each week. Do you see this as an advantage? The rest of the league lacks a former five star top five recruit and SEC starter is not typically a scout team MVP. Thanks Evan. You know, it's a really interesting question. Um, I think it helps. I don't know how much it helps because the scout team is not. I mean, it it helps because you've got a you've got a scout team quarterback who can make all the throws. Who's you know if, if he's mimicking, especially for Easton, if he's mimicking like a pro style offense, he's going to give you a really really good look. Um, he is running some other teams like. The, the like stripped down version of that offense that week though um like he's running basically the coach's impression of what that offense does, so I don't know how useful it is for his development, but it's certainly gonna be um i think better than you know facing a walk on like a lot of a lot of teams have to do on the scout team,
3: yeah, for sure, and I think you know you might be facing a better quarterback in practice than you're gonna do that week when you have someone like Jacob Eason there, so I think that always helps, and you're gonna hear. There's always going to be rumbling. So basically if you're, you know, if you want to bang on Chris Fetter's door and have them interview some of the defensive assistant coaches during the year and get an impression of what Jacob Eason looks like as a scout team quarterback. I mean, like when I was covering USC a couple of years ago, uh, we would hear from the defensive coaches about how good Sam Darnold was when it was that red shirt year, you know? So you'll hear about it, you know, and if you don't, then you're like, well, I wonder why they're not saying anything good about Jacob Eason. But I, my guess would be they're going to say some really good things about him, and that that that's that bodes well for, uh, you know, when he has to take over for, for Jake Browning. And and you know, I don't want to bag on Jake Browning all year, but we'll we'll try to make it special for you, Evan. Oh
0: yeah, yeah yeah. No, we'll we'll try to bring it for uh, Browning's final year.
3: Yeah. Uh oh man, uh, this I don't even like the title of this next one. Next series. <laughs> jeez man we just like literally just finished it took it like how much it was a herculean effort just to do this and now we're going to like request this kind of stuff all the time uh not having read this i have no idea what he's asking but i that's my guess alex in new york city alex i was just there I uh, we had a great time congrats dave and ryan on completing the pac-12 series with this final release of the washington schools how did he know we did this like
0: i know amazing he's so prescient
3: he just knows okay uh is that the word of the day
0: yeah, prescient, it means that you uh, can see things before they happen.
3: Perfect. I like it. So it's like clairvoyance or something. Okay. Exactly. I've decided to help you out by giving you a new series to tackle to ensure consistent off-season content to help you achieve your goal of normal off-season programming. It's a deep dive into Pac-12 basketball. Yeah. First week. Okay. First week, David will bring on Greg Hicks. And LeVar Ball to discuss the future of UCLA basketball and what a big baller Steve Alford is. I'm liking this. Uh, the following week uh, will we'll bring Sean Miller, the FBI lead investigator, and someone from QVC who sells anti sweating pills to discuss how to stay cool while under investigation. Finally, the series will end with Bill Walton and Dave Pash playing a version of the newlywed game in which Dave can't leave until he can cor- correctly match an answer with Bill. By my guess. This should take you to fall practice easily. Keep up the good work. And if after all my brilliant ideas, you still need more content for the off season, bring back the cow guy and have a mailbag episode, that's a quote, hot takeoff. That's from Alex in New York City. That was great. Love nope. it, Alex. That was pretty awesome, Alex. Thank you. Um Yeah, the whole I didn't really, you know, I don't watch a ton, but to see Dave and Bill Walton kinda like Dave just getting like frustrated with him at times, just like, and it's so good. It is, pretty, it is pretty
0: it's pretty. It's the best thing. I I love Walton. I love Walton. Like <laughs> I love listening to him. I don't think people get the joke that he's. It's all a put on. Like he's not actually saying that he thinks like ten Pac twelve teams are making the NCAA tournament. Like he's he's like doing a deep deep troll. And I think I I I don't know. Maybe I just have a greater appreciation
3: for that. When he talked about like the NIT, like he was talking about the greatness of the NIT. And every, like, oh, it's so the, good. That was the greatest foul in the history of the NIT. Like, every, it was it's so
0: un- good. <laughs> every single bit of it is so good. I just don't know why people don't appreciate it. They take sports way too seriously. Um, all right, next question is from Bernie. Uh, looking four years ahead, which college football coach from L.A. will have the most success?
3: Uh, so he means, is he talking about Clay Helton and, and, uh, Chip I assume Kevin?
0: so. They're neither of them are from LA, but I assume that's what he means, like the two colleges
3: Ooh. in LA. Okay. So most success. So to, to in just,
0: that four year stretch,
3: which not
0: of these two okay. coaches will have the most success. Okay. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm thinking it's okay. Saying.
3: Cause you could already, cause Clay Helton already has a Rose Bowl win and, so you would say Chip Kelly would have to at least do that in the next four.
0: Right. But then looking at that, Chip Kelly also had his organ record, so is that counting? So I think we just count this next four It's okay. Like who's gonna have more success in the next four? Okay. Because that's more apples to apples.
3: So I would say USC would have the advantage in the first two. And then you could I would
0: say USC as an institution has the advantage, but I'm not convinced Clay Helton's gonna be there for four years. Yeah.
3: Chip Kelly's going to be there for four years. Like it's- I
0: think so. I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to envision him leaving. I mean, he's not going to get fired within the next four years. And generally, I don't know, guys don't typically leave UCLA that quickly. Of course, they've never had somebody like Chip Kelly, so I don't know. But uh, that would make him one of the shortest Tender UCLA coaches of all time.
3: I just um, I don't see him leaving. Like I don't see him going back to the NFL. And like, nah, yeah, what, you know, and it's like you would have to be. I mean, who who would you leave for UCLA? Like, is it are you going? And he to,
0: already he already stiff armed Florida, so I don't know. Yeah, it's like I don't know if he's necessarily like looking at being you know big time SEC coach or whatever. So,
3: like, if Urban yeah. Meyer retires or or Nick Saban or something, like, would you do that? Like, I can't imagine what else. He would really need yeah. for you know.
0: I'm I'm gonna go I'm gonna go Chip here. If I, if we're just assessing the coaches themselves, I'm gonna go Chip.
3: why would you say? I that? think
0: I, I think Helton. Well, I I think even if Helton was gonna be there for four years, uh, yeah, probably because I think Chip Kelly has the potential for pretty elite seasons. I think once he has a couple years under his belt, and I don't. I mean, obviously. Just put together a what was it a ten and two regular season? That's pretty close to the lead. It's going to be close if Helton stays the four years, but I, I think I'll give the slight edge to Kelly just because Helton I, I I don't see him sticking there four years anyway. All
3: right, just to be contrary, I'll give the slight edge to Clay Helton just to you know just to go against Dave. Sure. Um, no,
0: no, that's fine. I think this is going to be fairly neck and neck, and if it isn't, um, that probably doesn't mean good things for UCLA.
3: And I think. It, this for this 2018 will be really important because if it's a really like mediocre t- type of season with, you know, trying to replace Sam Darnold, I think it's going to be harder to kind of bounce back. But if they're able to put together like another 10 win season, that's maybe, you know, like not really um, close to making the playoff, but you, you win the South and maybe win the PAC 12. I think that would be a better sign for the future. If it's a, if it's a big drop off, I don't know how quickly you could bounce back. The the naysayers that say this was all Sam Darnold the last couple of years, you know, they they would have a lot more evidence on their side if USC kind of took a step back like that.
0: I mean, you've got Matt Fink out there slinging the ball. I think he'll be fine. (laughs) Um, Yeah, uh, UCLA, I think, is a similar token. Like, if this first year – and I I think Chip Kelly will get it to a point where it's good, like where they're Back to at least what they were peaking at under Mora, which was like, you know, solid nine and three, ten and two years. Uh, but this first year, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens because it could be like, you know, he could be treating it like a full rebuild, and this first year could be four and eight. It's hard to really know at this point, only whatever it is, five practices into spring ball. Um, And so, you know, it could be one of those quick turnaround things because UCLA does have a pretty solid talent base, but then you look at the offensive line and it could be a lot like what Chris Peterson did at Washington where, yeah, there's talent, but he wants it to be his talent. And I could see that happening with Chip Kelly, too, where it's just they're not great fits and so they don't buy in culturally. And then it's a, you know, it's a six and six year to start out with and then things start picking up after that. So, you know, this question is interesting because I think it'll depend a lot on, this coming season for both programs, yeah. you know, if, if Clay Helton can successfully um, figure out a quarterback, then the pieces are there for USC to put together another pretty close to an elite season. Um, Chip Kelly's got a lot more to figure out this year to get to like a ten and two year this year, um, but I think, I mean, obviously he's got a little bit more of a track record than Clay Helton, so I'm a little bit more confident in his ability in the long term than Helton, um, but. You know, and then there's the other end, which is that USC's program viability in the long term is always going to be better than all but, like, five other programs in the country. So, you know, it's you could go back and forth on that for days.
3: Yeah, it's, it's really going to be interesting to watch. I don't I don't have high expectations for UCLA this year, but I will for 2019. And, yeah. I, you know, I was just one of those people that thought he would be a great hire. I know there's people that disagree with me, but it's just one of those things you want to watch. I'm like, I think he's going to be really good, so we'll –
0: We'll see. Yeah, we will see if he. I mean, if he goes out there and he runs like, you know, his 49ers offense, then we'll we'll be jumping off the bandwagon <laughs> real quick.
3: <laughs> All right, this is a division realignment for California, and this is from and he gave us a pronunciation guide. Futamaki, think. Ma- you
0: still screwed it up.
3: It's Maquis, right? Futamaki.
0: So, what is that letter in between the M and the H in his third syllable there? Uh, that's an an e E. so we're going meh
3: okay futa Okay, okay there we go uh,
0: guys i I can't even describe this to you how phonetic this man's name is (laughs) and and ryan is still still like maki maki no i'm thinking like maki
3: rolls and sushi stuff um (laughs) all right thank you uh for the question hey ryan and dave great job with the podcast see he likes me dave Uh Um, Do you you think it's time to realign the conference so that the California schools are all in the same division? Yes. Uh, UCLA and USC have to play Stanford every year while Colorado, Utah, Arizona, and ASU get to miss Stanford half the seasons. The same can be said for Cal and Stanford having to play USC every year while their division competitors don't. I think this creates a disadvantage for the California teams when trying to win division championships. Other South schools will complain about losing an LA trip for recruiting But I think it's time for the California schools to take a stand. UCLA and USC already gave up their higher TV revenue distributions back in 2011. If you agree, how would you realign the divisions? The South Division with UCLA, USC, Stanford, Cal, Arizona, and Arizona State makes sense to me. Thanks. Uh, Futameki.
0: Holy (laughs) hell. (laughs) Futameki. 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 Great. Perfect. Nice. Uh, Everything you said makes sense everything you said the south division with those teams that makes sense um and every bit of your reasoning makes sense i would do the exact same thing i think they should do it immediately um putting colorado and utah in the north makes sense i think even from a competitive balance perspective it makes sense because you've got you know usc and stanford would be the big schools in the south at least as of right now ucla fans and I, I i know there's there's ambition there because but just usc and stanford right now and then in the north, you would have Washington, um, you would have Oregon, um, and I mean, you would have you would have some good some good balance that isn't quite there right now.
3: And uh, ge- ge- geographically, it would make sense too, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't think Utah and Colorado make a whole lot of sense anywhere in the Pac-12. But
3: like, they're further they north.
0: Make... Yeah, but they're also like way out east. I mean, it's a big uh-huh. long flight, no matter where they're going in the Pac-12. Um, so no, yeah, I, I mean, but yeah, I think it, I think it makes a little bit more sense geographically and it makes a whole lot more sense from competitive balance from uh, if you're going to have them forced to play, if you're going to have UCLA and USC forced to play Stanford and Cal every year, you might as well put them in the same division. Yes. Um, so there's a whole lot of reasons to do it and I hope they do it soon.
3: And I think if you look at why, you know, why do USC and Stanford play each other the first game in the PAC 12 every year? And they, you know, they end up playing in the. Pac 12 championship game. Like no other conference, you know, Michigan and Ohio State don't play the first game of the year. You don't have, you know, LSU and Alabama play the first game of the year. And they're they're saying because they both play Notre Dame. Well, if that's the case, just let them be in the same division and then they can just play like a regular schedule and you can start off some of the crappier matchups first and then get to some of the better ones later on. So I I think that would make sense for a lot of reasons.
0: Well, and I know for UCLA, they have almost always wrapped up the season with either usc stanford or cal um and there have been years like 2012 where they got stanford in the final regular season game of the year and then they played them in the pac-12 championship six days later that's just stupid that's just put put the schools that like they're going to play in maybe the last game of the year put them in the same division this isn't hard
3: yes (laughs) just
0: do these things all right um so that's futameki Uh, We got another one from Hithloday. You ready? Sure. Bayleaves. There was a weird symmetry in your interviews with the Stanford and Cal publishers last week. First, you had Abadia, who covers a school that can't get up off the couch without national championship trophies spilling out of its pockets, expressing skepticism that Stanford's athletic department has the focus and drive to put football over the top. Then you had Gorsi, who covers a school that has spent the better part of a decade literally pouring all its resources into a hole in the earth. (laughs) Whistling past the graveyard of massive in- infrastructural problems at Cal, and instead talking up a bright future with a first time head coach and a hypothetical housing project, which I believe he just dreamed up for the first time on your podcast. Were you boys buying what they were selling? I think I would say the- mostly yes to Abadia and mostly no to Ryan Gorsey.
3: Yeah, there were, I mean, I think Ryan was a little optimistic, talking about 10 wins and stuff like that. Um, I I like what uh, what they're doing. Um, I, I you know I wasn't a big uh, you know fan of Justin Wilcox when he was at USC, but I I like the way he's handled things at Cal, and I think they can get better. But I'm not looking at them as a 10 win the the 11 and one dream. I'm not having that in 2018. So I would keep kind of keep the
0: dream a, alive. All right,
3: keep yeah, keep the dream alive. But I think that's what what's great, day about this uh, the series that we actually came up with, even though he wanted us to do that. We just came up with it on our own. Being uh-huh. able yeah. to get
1: Eventually.
3: it. Yeah. Get a, we got a different perspective from everybody. Because you could talk to someone else that covers UCLA, someone else that covers USC, and they would give you a different perspective. They're not going to tell you exactly what we think. We all have different personalities. We all have different points of view, level of snark, whatever it is. And so you get – that's what we get, you know, uh, Gorsi and Abadia, they have different views on things. And so if, if Gorsi covered Stanford, you'd probably get something different. And same thing with Abadia covering Cal.
0: Yeah. Um, and like, uh, so getting into the specifics of this thing, I think, um, I, I think RJ makes uh, – coming from UCLA, which has this also – this kind of weird impression of itself as like an elitist academic institution – and that's not even to the extent that Stanford is, but UCLA has that impression of itself. It's taken years and years and years of work for them to embrace football in kind of the, the competitive way that I think a lot of its fans have wanted it to do for a long time. And I could hundred percent see that being something that Stanford has to deal with as well. Like just the not wanting to appear like you're trying too hard. Um, and i think that that perception because they want to they have this mistaken impression that you can't be both uh you know a super academic school and uh you know be one of those cutthroat football programs um and i i i think that's a fallacy but um i buy that one the the Gorsi one i just it doesn't i i i i get what he was saying it's just it's hard for me to believe that they're just that, that they're going to I just don't see them walking away from this this massive debt issue unscathed or like relatively unscathed. I mean, he's he kind of mentioned they're going to have to cut some sports, but I uh I'm really interested to see how severe the cuts end up being. I'll yeah, just say that.
3: Me too. All right. Pac-12 realistic chances of ever getting on DirecTV. This is from Scott uh Washington State. Hey Ryan and Dave. Thanks for the great series about each team and the conference and their level of commitment towards the success of college football at each school. Also, well done for leaving the best for last and choosing the Washington schools to back clean up in your series. Will at least one school go dogs. Now for my question. Uh, We didn't do that for any particular reason, right? We just we didn't have any. No,
0: I think we were just traveling generally north.
3: Yeah. Okay. Uh, Now for my question. With the ratings for the Pac-12 network being so anemic, and that's a nice way of putting it, would DirecTV even consider carrying the channel going forward as I am convinced they could run a loop of puppies, kittens, and other animals just born along with babies that make you smile and feel all warm and fuzzy inside and get the same viewership numbers, if not substantially more than what the Pac-12 would garner at a fraction of the cost? The cost is really a big deal like it costs a lot of money to broadcast yeah. all those games live like you're you're oh, doing yeah. some women's water polo game that nobody's watching live like it costs a lot of money. you said yeah, you
0: need a crew you need camera crews you, you probably need somebody talking like there's a talent fee there's all kinds of stuff yeah
3: equipment all all that stuff uh, And even if DirecTV was interested in putting the network on its package, what would they give the Pac-12 to today versus what the conference was asking for six years ago 20 cents on the dollar 15 maybe even 10. This much we can all agree on. They would laugh Larry Scott out of the building if he brought a proposal today that was within the same universe of the one he offered them back in 2012. Looking forward to your spring ball reports in the near future. Thanks from Scott.
0: Yeah, I wonder how much of the issue, like when you really boil it all down to its fundamental things, how much of it was just Larry Scott fundamentally overvalued what the Pac-12 network would be worth. I get, i I think that's so much of this is like the, the perception of what it was going to be worth in 2012 versus what it is worth now is so out of whack comparatively. So, yeah.
3: And it's a very expensive endeavor. Um, the fact that they put it, they put it in the Bay area for whatever reason, when you have Los Angeles in your footprint, as you know, there's just, there's so many out of work <laughs> entertainment people here. Like you could, you could do a lot and it's the real estate wouldn't be as expensive as where they they're doing it up there in San Fran. I mean, it's, and you know, they pay their people the most. They have the most live, um, sporting events. And, uh, it's, I, I, you know, you understand that the bet is we own all of it as the PAC 12 owns everything. You got seven networks instead of one, but it just doesn't seem to be coming to fruition. I know that they, Larry Scott keeps saying that that's what they're betting on. and, And somehow, it's going to come come full circle, and it's going to, they're going to get the benefit of owning everything. I'm just not seeing it, you know, and I think it, you'd be better off cutting all those and having one network, one single thing to focus on, one thing you could put in. Uh, you know, it, it helps with the negotiations. Like if you're on Sling TV, you can get Pac-12 LA or Pac-12 Bay Area, but you can't get the the main Pac-12 network, you know. And so it's different. It complicates things. And it just doesn't seem to bring any, th- any benefit to the table, Dave.
0: Yep, completely agree. All right, now we're on to Anthony. Who has had a bigger impact as a coach at each Pac-12 school? For Utah, Urban Meyer, or Kyle Whittingham? All right, let's just take them one by
3: one. Okay. Urban Meyer or Kyle Whittingham? <sighs> I think I'm going to do Urban Meyer.
0: I'm going to go Kyle Whittingham just because he's been there for, like, Long. friggin' ever. And... uh I think Urban Meyer was only there two years. Is that right? Can but that he possibly undefe- be right?
3: Did he have an undefeated season and beat Alabama? Like, didn't he do that? Or Kyle that- Whittingham had an undefeated oh, that- season and beat
0: Alabama. That was Whittingham.
3: What did Meyer do? Meyer had
0: he had a good year. Uh, let me look.
3: Shit. So Urban Meyer's probably-
0: record at Utah, he had two seasons. He also had an undefeated year, twelve and zero, seven and zero in conference. Won the Fiesta Bowl, finished in the AP top five, um, so that was a great year. Um, but Whittingham did functionally the same thing in 2008, and they actually finished number two in the AP poll.
3: Okay, so, I'll, I'll go with you then, Whittingham. I forgot that Whittingham did that too. Who did yeah. they beat in the Fiesta Bowl? They beat someone good, obviously. Um,
2: yeah. Did
3: they show let that me there? See. Let so let it was see. Whittingham that ended up beating Alabama before they came to the Pac-12, right?
0: It was Whittingham who beat Alabama, but let's look at who Urban Meyer beat in that Fiesta Bowl. I want to say it was somebody not super impressive, but let's see. It was Pittsburgh, yeah. It was oh, not okay, so it wasn't that
3: big. Okay, yeah, go with Whittingham then.
0: They beat the hell out of them, though. It was 35-7. to 7. So, Yeah.
3: You know. Whittingham is the longevity. Both had, you know, and uh, Meyer was uh, Alex Smith. That was Meyer, too, right?
0: Yeah, Meyer started with Alex Smith. I don't know if he was still around for 2005 when Whittingham took over, okay. but yeah, he was the he was the quarterback for that Fiesta Bowl team. Okay. All right, um, and then the next one is um, if my mouse will work. Uh, the next one is Stanford: David Shaw or Jim
3: Harbaugh. I think I'm going to go with Harbaugh just because he kind of created the atmosphere that allowed Shaw to. You know, who knows what Shaw, if Shaw took over first, but Harbaugh kind of turned everything around, Uh, you know, he beat Pete Carroll, Um, they, you know, I think he's the one that put that level of toughness there and and kind of established that program, and David Shaw's kind of continued, took that torch and ran with it.
0: Yeah, I think both have done a fantastic job, but I got to give it to Harbaugh there. He built the program out of nothing. Stanford was garbage before Harbaugh. We talked about this with RJ last week, but this was a huge turnaround job, and, and so much of their culture now is due to what he instilled uh, those first couple of years. So, uh, yeah, we'll go with Harbaugh there. Apologies to David Shaw, who's been, who's been great at maintaining. Um, and then USC, John McKay or Pete Carroll?
3: That's interesting. I mean, McKay won more national championships. Uh, Pete Carroll really, though, took a team that's just been, like, you know, kind of mediocre for a while and changed it completely in an era when, you know, modern college football was taken off. Like at the time, if you remember, like Alabama was bad, Texas was bad. You needed to kind of all those programs, the traditional powers needed to kind of get a, you know, a, a bolt of lightning somehow. And Pete Carroll was that bolt of lightning and brought them back. Um, maybe it's, re- you know, recency bias, but I'll go with, uh, with Pete Carroll, the way he turned things around for USC.
0: I'd probably do the same. And uh- I think you could make an argument that a big portion of USC's relative success over the last eight years is largely due to what Pete Carroll did in his, whatever it was, nine seasons. Like how many of these guys still, who must've been like two when Reggie Bush was doing things said, Oh yeah, I grew up a huge Reggie Bush fan. Like still, that's like a recruiting line for people because of those teams that, that Carroll put together in the mid two thousands. So, um, I still think that's paying dividends for USC in recruiting. Obviously, there's a baseline level of recruiting that USC is always going to do, but um, I I think it's made an impact even beyond his years there. And obviously, John McKay did as well. But um, I think in the modern, much more competitive era of college football, um, I think it's it's I think you got to go with Carroll there.
3: I think so too. I mean, and you know, there's there have been other guys. There's other Heisman Trophy winners. You're like a Marcus Allen. Like how many? Tailbacks wanted to come to USC for years after that with the Marcus Allen. Um, and, but, yeah, we still hear that about, you know, Leinert and Reggie Bush and stuff. Mostly Reggie Bush. He's probably the one that brings in the most. But it's funny. like I mean, these guys were uh, pretty young when he was running football for USC, and they still talk about him. So, I, I, I would say now, maybe it's, like I said, recency bias, but I would go with Pete Carroll. That's a good question. Yep. So. For sure. Uh, should I go? I think we got Scott again in Washington. Yep. Uh, another reason larry scott right man for the job i'm sensing sarcasm dave i haven't read it yet ryan slash dave apparently larry scott doesn't understand why essie was left out of the ncaa tourney well when all your product is on a network and at a time no one east of boulder colorado gets or is awake for surprise this is what happens in any organization when the optics are the person at the top doesn't care or is bad at, it, at the job, it is a natural reaction that no one else will. And that is what is happening in the Pac-12 conference which is with its revenue-producing sports, men's football and basketball, in regards to the national media as we become the odd man out amongst the other Power Five conferences. But not all is lost. Larry came from Harvard, and so he has the experience, uh, experience to position the Pac-12 as the varsity version of the Ivy League, where we just do our own thing, brag to no one who cares about being the quote-unquote Conference of Champions. Hi, Bill Walton. And two weekends a year, (laughs) little shout out to Bill, and two weekends a year, have the Sports Network flash a 30-second clip showing who won the conference championship in football and basketball and earning the one and only automatic bid to the 68-team tourney. Just wait until intelligent uh, competitions and grow your university financial endowments, become NCAA sports, and the Pac twelve will be the team to beat then. Go Dogs, Scott in Washington.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Can't can't <laughs> disagree with a word of what you've said. I got all the
3: long ones today. You got all the short ones.
0: I know. Usually it doesn't work out like that, but this this week it, it definitely did. All, yeah. I apologize. No, the it's deepest.
3: just it's just the luck of the we just pick a <laughs> Question ago, it's we not just, like we planned it.
0: There's no rhyme or reason to what we're doing here.
3: Um, we no did path have a. To this. I think we had a couple tweets. Uh, did we? Uh, let's see. So, oh, uh, there was about. Okay, so Brian Fisher tweeted uh, the the AAC semis got broadcast uh, on CBS with uh, on CBS with their top crew. The Pac-12 final was stuck at FS1 at 10 p.m. Eastern. And behind the Big East and Fox's pecking order, uh, the Pac 12 should be lobbying broadcast partners every day for better coverage. And then yep, uh, Big Easy 206 said, Everything is fine, Larry Squat, and then CC'd us on that.
0: Yep. Yeah. It was uh, not great. Not great.
3: And then we had one from Trent uh, Lang today I hate you, Ryan Abraham, inside Troy. For demonstrating that Trojans can be great human beings, give fair analysis, and have a good sense of humor, that is. I guess the exception proves the rule. You and David Wood should definitely do a Pac-12 podcast for Pac-12 basketball. Um, and Never. I told him, I don't know anything about basketball. It would be really hard for me to do that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't have the, like, the willpower to do that. Like, I don't have the, I think, I, yeah, there's just no way yeah i I couldn't bring myself to talk about college basketball that much these days
3: that was me responding to you because you gave some stats about why steve alford is a great i assume i I wasn't reading all the stats but assume you know (laughs) (laughs) and i responded to you some snarky thing and then he responded so uh but yeah thanks so yeah we did get a ton of tweets this week but we had a couple
0: no but a lot of emails thanks guys for sending them in um Keep, keep sending us all of your questions, all yeah. of your myriad questions.
3: So now we're going to try. I don't know how we're going to do it yet, but we're going to talk um, spring football. And, you know, I don't know if it's like an update thing from every school each week or we, we talk to individual programs. I'm not sure, Dave. we, we got to figure out what we want to do here. But we're, we'll be talking some spring football over the next few weeks.
0: Rest assured that even if there is no plan, we will claim there is one after the fact.
3: You know what worries me? When we had a plan, like not that it came together smoothly every week, but it came together. Like with no plan, like we could I could see a couple weeks passing by and nothing happens because we don't really know what we're supposed to be doing. What an ominous
0: note to finish this on. <laughs> what well, if this is the last everyone out there ever hears of us?
3: It, that would be bad. So we need to come up with a plan. So that's our that's our okay. goal is uh, Hey,
0: if you have a plan out there, anybody, any kind of plan, could be a plan for this podcast, could be a plan for, I don't know, filling a ditch, whatever it is. Let us know.
3: And uh we'll we'll dedicate maybe like all of next week to all the Pac 12 teams still left in the, the tournament. So we'll see. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> if we if we have no show, it's because everybody got eliminated. How's that?
0: Yeah, that'll be great.
3: Awesome. All right, Dave. Well, good stuff. Uh he is David Woods. I am Ryan Abraham, and we are the podcast of champions. We do appreciate you spending some time of your day to listen to our little show, go on iTunes, uh, give us a review, positive feedback, five-star rating, all that stuff is great. Tweet us, email us, give us a voicemail. We love those too. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we will talk to you next time.